Welcome back, everybody. We'll uh, get started on our third speaker. Thank you. So our third speaker today is David Stofi, and he's graduating from IWP with a degree in statecraft and national security affairs this semester. Uh, during his time at IWP, he focused on East Asian affairs and security studies. He currently works as a foreign policy research analyst at the Charles Koch Foundation in Arlington, Virginia. David completed his undergraduate studies at the University of Colorado at Colorado Springs with a degree in political science and economics. The paper he is presenting today is entitled Chinese Economic and Security Statecraft in Central Asia, which investigates China's interactions with the region and the great powers that operate there. This paper was done in was David's honors thesis under the advisement of Professor Liu. So please help me in welcoming David Stoke, please. Uh, good afternoon, everyone. I'm excited to, to be here today to speak on this topic. It was a very long paper, and I wrote it over like the course of six months. So I really enjoyed writing it, and I hope you guys enjoy listening to me talk about it. So how does this thing work real quick? Okay, cool. So just uh, to cover what I mean when I refer to Central Asia real quick, I refer to Kazakhstan, Uzbekistan, Turkmenistan, Tajikistan, and Kyrgyzstan. So I'm not going to be talking about like Afghanistan or Iran, which a lot of people oftentimes lump in with Central Asia. So, so don't assume that. But uh, our story today will begin in the late 1980s, uh, as the shadow of the former Soviet Union was beginning to recede from Central Asia uh, under uh, Gorbachev's perestroika. So this restructuring saw a very brief blossoming, blossoming of multi-party uh, multi democratic systems in Central Asia, but that was short-lived, and all five states quickly succumbed to autocratic rule um, under pre-ex-Soviet officials. Um, as the, these, these states were net drained on the USSR budget, um, and once these states became independent, they were unable to continue to finance um, their, their uh, projects and economy, and they, their economies uh, subsequently collapsed, um, as shown here. So the uh, deteriorating infrastructure, flagging energy production, and difficult standard of living growth throughout the 1990s um, were, were Central Asia's kind of backdrop to China's interaction with them uh, post-2000. So the Central Asian states have had a mixed economic recovery um, after the 1990s, um, and these states began to experience GDP growth in the early 2000s, but in 2001, a very major event happened where that saw another great power beyond China and Russia uh, interject itself into the region, that's the United States. Um, and so with the war in Afghanistan, the U.S. needed geographically local bases and staging grounds. So as the Washington war machine took root in the region, um, it, it built bases across, across, the, across four of the five states. And Beijing saw this as a circumference of U.S. forces around China, so from, from bases in South Korea and Japan to uh, a warming relationship with India to now troops on the ground in Central Asia, uh, Beijing was, was getting concerned. But in the early aughts, China was in no position to, to usurp the U.S. leadership there. And so they decided, decided to continue following Deng Xiaoping's 24-character uh, uh, strategy to hide our capacities and bide our time. So uh, Russia took a more aggressive approach with, with the U.S. in the region and began reasserting itself um, and 
tried to become the hegemon once more. But as Sebastian Peros, a scholar just down the street at the uh, George Washington claimed, as Russia began to spend a lot more in the region and tried to uh, push out the United States, that, um, that was actually the primary catalyst for why Russia is continually weakening in the region and is no longer the hegemon there. Um, so the first step China took in combating um, external great power influence in Central Asia was the creation of the Shanghai Five. And the Shanghai Five was a small forum of five states with China leading that was formed to resolve border disputes in the former Soviet Union and China region. Uh, it was successful in its goals over the first few years. However, it quickly became um, an organization without a cause. And so, with the U.S. insertion into Central Asia, several years later, China changed the Shanghai Five's modus operandi. And it twisted it to, um, from border disputes to preventing the spread of great power influence in the Central Asian republics. Um, specifically, the organization targeted the three evils of terrorism, separatism, and extremism. These were effectively the same targets the United States had there, um, however, this was a cunning move from Beijing because it gave China the perception that it was working kind of in a, in a multilateral global sense in the region, but was able to quietly exert its influence and push out, push out the U.S. Um, I mean, why should the U.S. operate in Central Asia if China's doing effectively the same job? So China would not operate solely against the United States in the region. Russia was another threat, although um, it was less intense and immediate. Or, um, nonetheless, if China could enact change against both, all the better. For example, in 2005, the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, which is the evolution of the Shanghai Five, um, made a declaration that all non-local states had to remove bases from, from Central Asia. And this targeted Russia and the United States uh, equally because, it, because you had to be a local actor to have a, have a base in the region. Um, in, th in this instance in particular, the United States and Russia were competing over the modest military base in Kyrgyzstan, and after this declaration, it took hundreds of millions of dollars from both the U.S. and Russia um, by fighting over this base to finally win out, and the U.S. in 2009 got basing rights after spending all this money. However, Russia then overthrew the Kyrgyz president, um, and this, that country has been embroiled in civil war off and on since then. So through that one act, China was able to pit Russia and the United States against one another while effectively making it look like it had nothing to do with it. So the Shanghai Cooperation Organization, currently suffer which is China's main organism for dealing with security issues in Central Asia, currently suffers from two setbacks. First, the organization is still young. Uh, it's, it's chronically underfunded, and it has limited multilateral power. Uh, because of the way the charter is set up. More so, the organization's focus on economic, energy, and infrastructure issues, as well as its focus on security and border issues, um, means it can't specialize in anything, and it's diluting all of its capabilities. Secondly, as the uh, Shanghai Cooperation Organization gains members, its ability to pursue meaningful decision-making diminishes. Um, for example, with the inclusion of India and Pakistan in uh, 2017, <coughs> Everybody is perceiving the SCO to be kind of a mini regional forum instead of a Chinese-led direction. Uh, and this is just decaying the ability that China has to, to interact in Central Asia. So China's other major power play in Central Asia, beyond the 
the weakening Shanghai Cooperation Organization is the Belt and Road Initiative. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative is China's um, economic project across Eurasia that travels both through the, the oceans and over land en encompassing the entire Eurasian continent. Um, the project currently comprises 67 countries and six economic corridors with 60% of the world's population and 33% of the world's wealth. So um, Chinese officials anticipate spending over $1 trillion on, BR, uh, on BRI projects over the, the lifespan of the project. And, and yeah, so this next graph shows China's aggregate trade with um, various regions around the world. And you'll notice the Central Asian republics have the thinnest slice of the pie at the top there. They account for less than 1% of aggregate Chinese trade. Yet, the Belt and Road Initiative is spending over 10% of that $1 trillion lump sum in Central Asia. So there is an inordinate amount of, of interest going on there. Um, and that is because Central Asia is located um, in, in the middle of Eurasia, hence, hence its name, and is also, it, it gives the, uh, China the opportunity to use it as a platform to reach out to the Middle East, Europe, South Asia, and so it's seen as a stepping stone. Um, yeah, so building on, on China's international security influence and economic efforts in Central Asia uh, are the anticipated impacts these effects will have on Chinese domestic unrest issues as well. So China is looking at Central Asia not just as a, as a great power security concern and not just as an economic engine, but also from the vantage point of uh, domestic unrest that it's currently experiencing in, in Xinjiang or in Western China. Um, specifically, the Uyghur ethnic group um, it has been demanding independence from China basic, basically since um, the People's Republic was founded and uh, has really ratched up efforts in the past decade and a half or so. Um, the Chinese state media makes it difficult to understand the extent of Uyghur terrorism in China because they rarely report on it and the reporting they do, do, it, do on it is very incomplete. Um, but for example, over the past decade, there have been more than 600 totaled, or counted, I should say, 600 civilian deaths ascribed to Uyghur terrorism in Western China. And that doesn't even include Uyghur terrorism that's happening elsewhere in the country, such as the 2014 Kunming knife attack or the 2013 Tiananmen Square attack. Um, so these numbers may be much higher because we don't know if the, the Communist Party is neglecting to report additional attacks or additional um, deaths. For example, in 2008, there was a city bus in Urumqi that was bombed and killed 16 people, but it was not reported on anywhere until an investigative reporter from the International Herald Tribune several weeks later showed up and started digging around. So the, state, so the Chinese state media is not doing a good job of, uh, of uh, reporting on domestic unrest issues, uh, which is also tied to Central Asia given its geographic proximity. So beyond uh, domestic solution that's China domestic solutions that China is pursuing to fix these uh, th this Uyghur terrorism, uh, it's looking at bilateral military cooperation with the Central Asian republics and uh, other S uh, Shanghai cooperation organization states. Um, over the last several years, there have been there's been an uptick. And SCO, I'm just going to start saying that instead of Shanghai Cooperation Organization, because that's very long. There's been an uptake in an uptick in SCO military exercises, particularly targeting counterterrorism efforts. Um, this helps China not just 
uh, in fighting domestic terrorism issues, but again, it helps push out U.S. interests, which are trying to improve the nation's counterterrorism capabilities. So these military exercises are actually paying dividends uh, for China already. In 2014, 11 Uyghur nationalists were killed in Kyrgyzstan by Kyrgyz security forces who were claiming the Uyghurs were plotting an attack in China. So these, these, ethnic, and religious, these ethnic and religious issues um, with the Uyghurs transcend China. Um, Russia, um, well, yeah, they transcend China. The, the struggle for power in the heart of Eurasia is not only fought on political battlefields. Economic issues are equally competitive. One way that Russia maintains Central Asian control is through manipulating the Central Asian energy markets. Uh, before 2005, all land-based oil and gas pipelines that crossed Eurasia had to go through Russia. Um, this gave the Kremlin basically a monopoly on any tra energy transportation across the Eurasian continent. Uh, the construction of the Central Asian China gas pipeline from Turkmenistan to uh, Western China and the Kazakhstan China oil pipeline um, upended Russia's stranglehold on the energy market in the region. China overtook Russia in 2009 as Central Asia's primary trade partner, as shown on this graph. Um, and the disparity is only growing. Uh, the last couple years, given the depression that has hit the Central Asian Republic's trade, has declined precipitously. Um, but estimates are, are expect to see China's economic connections with Central Asia grow exponentially. So these economic indicators contest the scholarship that argues Russia will remain dominant in the region moving forward. Um, Ru Russia dominates currently, nobody can argue that, but believing that these indicators will uh, exist perpetually is, is folly. Um, specifically, if we look at another uh, metric for Chinese economic engagement with Central Asia, we'll, we can look at foreign direct investment, where China overtook Russia in 2009. And um, the, due to uh, projects such as the Belt and Road Initiative, this is only going to get, the, the disparity is only going to grow between China and Russia's uh, economic connections to the region. Financial estimates put the amount of investment in Chinese uh, foreign direct investment in Central Asia due to the Belt and Road Initiative currently at over $100 billion. Um, and this will go into a lot of uh, infrastructure projects, such as almost 60,000 kilometers of roads and railways and eight logistics centers. Now, this investment is not just helping uh, China buy influence in the Central Asian states, it's also physically putting Chinese influence there. For example, one of these logistics centers that I mentioned uh, is Kashgar, which is in Kazakhstan. And over the past several years, the Han Chinese population in the city has exploded so dramatically that more than 50% of the population is now Han Chinese instead of Kazakh, where before, uh, before 2008, I believe the number was less than 10%. So um, this level of investment is quickly outstripping any other great powers interaction with the region. Um, the Belt and Road Initiative is China's golden ticket to economic domination in Central Asia. And as one common saying in Kazakhstan goes, in 2030, we'll all wake up and find ourselves speaking Chinese. So China's organizational infrastructure and history in Central Asia exemplifies the two pillars of Chinese policy strategy, security and economics. It should be emphasized that they are not equal. Uh, the former precedes the latter in Chinese policymaking. Both, however, are closely related. 
Uh, Chinese policy has shown development cannot proceed without the security provided by either force or geopolitical balancing. This differs significantly from Western-led development programs uh, that oftentimes engage in high-risk investments, such as we've seen in Iraq, Libya, Afghanistan, Nigeria, and others. Uh, due to the tumultuous founding of the Chinese Communist Party and the subsequent conflicts between all neighboring great powers, Mao's China struggled to find security. And that is still seen in, uh, uh, the, the ramifications are still seen today in China um, as it's been very removed from creating uh, alliances with, with, various, with various peripheral uh, countries and the fact that it is increasingly spending more and more on um, defense. So China spends 30 times more on defense now than it did in 1990. Um, however, it's cut defense's share of GDP by 20%. Uh, this is due to the explosive economic growth that's happened uh, domestically in China over that period. And as security concerns have waned, additional capital has become available for investment. So Beijing thought, might as well spend this somewhere. And around 2000, Chinese outward foreign direct investment began to grow exponentially, as seen in this chart. So where the first strategy is security-based, um, well, I should say where the, the, the first strategy is security-based on which states or non-state actors can harm Chinese interests. The second strategy of development is predicated on which states can advance those interests. Therefore, uh, the Chinese security development relationship curve that I uh, put forth in my paper is kind of the culmination of my research of the case study of Central Asia. So this curve uh, graphically illustrates the, predi uh, the predictions in a negatively correlated model that the threats to Chinese security um, and the prospects of Chinese development um, are inversely related. So develop, uh, threats to Chinese security the, on the, on the x-axis there, which is, my in, which is the independent variable of this study, uh, looks at the threats to Chinese security and is defined by China's ability to de deter or defeat a military aggressor or alliance in which it is a member and the, the propensity for hostile action towards Chinese people or projects exists. So, what all that says, uh, summarized, um, is that if China perceives a state to be able to hurt it, it will not invest in that state. Um, the, the development, uh, the, the y-axis here, the, the uh, dependent variable, if you will, is defined by the likelihood that China could invest in um, outward direct investment projects where Beijing will not face political turbulence and will see positive returns on investment. So this curve is explicitly um, uh, applicable only to non-great powers because the Chinese economic engine is not solely dependent on any one non-great power. So for example, if Turkmenistan off, um, for example, Turkmenistan offers a similar market to Chinese goods as Ghana does, similar with uh, a country with which Turkmenistan has nearly identical GDP. Although Turkmenistan is a source of Chinese consumed natural gas, there's a lot of natural gas, um, uh, a lot of different natural, ga natural gas markets that China can tap. Uh, whereas India is a major market for Chinese goods, uh, both imports and exports, and could not easily be replicated if there was suddenly an embargo between the two states. 
So this curve is built upon the previous work of Thomas Fingar of the National Committee of United States-China Relations. So his data looked at the South and East Asian states, and uh, my contribution to his model is adding in the Central Asian states and developing this curve. He, he supplied the database, I, I crunched the numbers and looked at how they could be applied to some sort of theoretical model. So in this curve, if a state is a high threat to Chinese security, there is a low potentiality of economic partnership and subsequent development. As a state becomes less of a threat to China, Beijing's willingness and ability to contribute to that state's economic development increases, congruent with the propensity to advance Chinese economic interests as well. Uh, until the state becomes a low security threat to China, at which point it reaches the summit of the curve, of the, the summit of economic development. So figures nine and 10 here are the, which I'll show both real quick, are the 1992 and 2013 um, maps of the data that I, that I compiled and put into this curve. So uh, the reason I chose 1992 and 2013 is because it, 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 it spans over four different Chinese uh, president administrations with Deng Xiaoping, Jiang Zemin, Hu Jintao, and Xi Jinping. Uh, so it shows that there is a continuity not just from an administration's choices, but uh, in the greater Communist Party in general. So in 1992, China's outward direct investment programs were still in their infancy, but they laid the groundwork for China's operational framework. Uh, two of China's largest ODI recipients in 1992 were Myanmar and North Korea, which both stay, which are both located on the top left corner of the of the chart. Um, and these states didn't just offer China a place to invest; they offered China uh, geopolitical value as well. Uh, North North Korea was the buffer state against. Uh, the West, and Myanmar upset New Delhi, which was China's greatest geopolitical foe at the time. So contrast those two states with, say, Vietnam or any of the Central Asian republics, and you'll see, and you can see why Beijing would not have invested in those states, because at the time, the Central Asian republics were newly founded, hostile, and uncertain in their foreign policy and Vietnam was still reeling from the war it had with China a decade earlier. Um, so the 2013 geopolitical landscape is much more favorable to Beijing, um, and Beijing has a lot more money to spend now. In 2013, China spent 73 billion uh, US dollars on outward direct investment, and by 2016, that had grown to 217 billion. So China is still investing large sums of money in the states that were already at the top left of the curve, but, has, but other states have gravitated to the left, and um, subsequently China is investing a lot of money in those states as well. Um, this curve helps us predict and inform Chinese policy-making decisions. Um, for example, if investment suddenly drops in Kyrgyzstan, it can be assumed that, that either Bishkek can no longer benefit Chinese economic expansion, is perceived as threatening for state or non-state reasons, or a mixture of both. Uh, the predictive value of this curve, we'll go back to here, the predictive value of this curve can be tested through, say, the Chinese-Philippines relationship. Uh, both states continue to fight over territorial rights in the South China Sea, uh, and China has not invested greatly in the Philippines due to that and other reasons. Um, but 
saliently the security reasons. Um, if suddenly Beijing were to start investing in Manila more, we, this curve would then tell us that they're perceiving the Philippines to be a continually less threatening neighbor. Um, so based on decreased threat potential from the Central Asian republics and the multiple variables that make the region attractive for economic investment, uh, it's clear why China is pursuing um, investment in Central Asia. China's level of threat perception can easily be traced in the Central Asian republics through this curve um, and inform diplomatic, security, and other efforts the United States has towards Central Asia. Um, and with that, uh, I'm going to open it up to questions. This is a, a, a long paper that I may not have just, uh, explained as well as I could have, so I'm happy to explain more.